0: Hello, and welcome to the Synopsis Podcast, where we break down the history, economics, culture, and geopolitics surrounding the world's other superpower. I'm Michael. And I'm Sam. And today we are back with a We Told You So 2023 edition following up on our previous overhyping China episode. We here at the Synopsis Podcast have never produced a sequel to any of our episodes. And so you might be asking yourself, oh, Michael and Sam, you impossibly impeccable prognosticators in a proverbial parking lot of platitudinous podcasts, your 100% correct analysis, effervescent levity, and a classic mid-Atlantic broadcaster voice tone have already endowed me with a nuanced understanding of China's myriad internal problems and headwinds. Plus, I like the theme song. Why risk tarnishing your brilliance with a sequel that, much like the last season of Game of Thrones, could only serve to leave the audience suffocating under the weight of their own unfulfilled fantasies and expectations of a once unflinchingly gritty and incisive blend of fantasy and reality that inspired a wave of imitations, not to mention all those weird COVID baby names like Khaleesi or Jamie. What was I talking about? And why are you digging through my medicine cabinet? First off, mind your own business. I came in through the window. Second, because, and I'm being serious now, for all the reasons that we laid out in part one, many big things have changed, which indicate that China continues to plateau and in some ways further decline. China is no longer the most populous country on earth. China no longer has access to top-tier Western tech and innovation. China's levels of foreign investment have declined by over a third since COVID. China now has the fastest aging workforce in the world, and perhaps most significantly, The Russian invasion of Ukraine has shocked the West into a massive military rearmament campaign to say nothing of China's immediate neighbors like South Korea, Japan, and Taiwan. The halcyon days of China's demographic dividend are now, by the CCP's own admission, well behind it. And we at the Synopsis Podcast argue that these circumstances threaten to lock China and the United States into a classic Thucydidean trap, making the risk of a violent confrontation more likely, not less.
1: And we are morbidly excited to share all of this with you today. Right. So as Michael mentioned in the intro, this is the first sequel, uh, direct sequel episode that we've done of the Synopsis podcast. So particularly in the first half, we're going to be making reference uh, a lot to some of the themes and ideas and concepts that we covered in the last Overhyping China episode. Uh, So, you know, I'm going to give one disclaimer once at the top right now. We highly encourage you to take a listen to that episode first, as uh, we will be glossing over some of the more in-depth details, as well as making reference to it. Uh, So if you would like, please pause the audio right now and go do so. That said, let's get right into it. One of the first topics we discussed extensively in that episode is the demographic crisis that uh, Michael made reference to it in the intro. Um, so what is going on there? Due to decades, uh, four decades of China's one-child policy enactment by the CCP, China at one point in time, they had very favorable demographics, but these are now coming to a close. Uh, a very illustrative factoid um, that occurred in the intervening time since the last episode was that India overtook China as the world's most populous country at the 1.4 billion people mark. Now, do these numbers, you know, a few few hundred thousand here and there, really make a difference on the world stage? No. But it is um, a great example of <clears throat> the declining population challenge that China is now facing. Uh, China's official replacement rate, the number of people um, out for every two in, so, you know, mom and a dad, need to have at least 2.1 kids, um, two to replace them, and then one for good measure, uh, because unforeseen events happen. Um, you need a replacement rate of 2.1 just to sustain a population. China's official CCP-sided number is 1.6. However, Western analysts uh, argue that that number is actually much lower at 1.2. India's, for reference, is a little bit over uh, that 2.1 figure. So they're continuing to maintain and grow their population. Um, So since India overtook China as the world's most populous country, it is not likely, you know, barring some major catastrophes, unforeseen events, all those sorts of things, it's not likely to relinquish that title anytime soon. And that really matters for China because the Chinese economic expansion, um, which so defines modern China, is in many respects built upon those favorable demographics. China, um, <clears throat> for a number of years, as a as, uh, result of being the largest country, had also the world's largest uh, labor force. And particularly... Um, the composition of China's demographics was very favorable. It was predominantly working-age uh, individuals because of the one-child policy, which reduced the um, number of dependent children um, following those working-age people. So th- the Chinese labor force was able to both be large, very productive, and also not have to contribute to the upbringing of the, the next in line. However, eventually, um, those favorable trends come to an end um, as that baby boom generation is starting to age out. Where um, the you know using sixty-five. As a proxy for retirement age, um, the the the, the one-child policy was enacted in the early 1980s, um, so that's coming that's coming due within the foreseeable future. Um, that's a, so, so 1980s um, 2020 is uh, 60 years, obviously. So we're just about the time where the first wave of um, the population born after the, the one-child policy is going to start to retire, and that means there's not going to be a anywhere near replacement level of um, working-age Chinese to replace those people. And um, <clears throat> that that is going to have significant impacts of China's economy because the, the driver of any sort of economic productivity growth is, um, is the people who contribute to the economy.
0: And, and in China, more so than most other countries, China's rise was predicated almost entirely on its favorable demographics. Um, as we are keen to remind people, China has a GDP per capita very close to that of Mexico. It's just that they have 1.3 billion people. Um, most of their programs have benefited from the sheer volume of people working on a problem as opposed to the quality of work of that individual worker. You know, one great example is AI, right? People have made a lot of noise about uh, China leading the world in AI engineering because they have so many AI engineers and so many firms and all these uh, AI national champion competitions in their universities to find the best and the brightest in the field, but they're not the ones who built GBT, right? The West is still leading, arguably, Uh, along the lines of innovation. Um, And so you can see that like China is heavily dependent on just quantity to bolster itself. And it is now in a situation where that quantity is going to steadily decrease and there is no uh, end to that decrease in sight.
1: Exactly. So, to kind of give um, you, dear listener, a high-level overview of the shape of this episode, we're going to be kind of spending the first half talking about a lot of the factors that we talked about in our last episode, and then the second half is going to be more devoted to the so what. The so what being, um, as we mentioned in the intro, the fact that a conflict with Taiwan... Um, you know, China making aggressive moves on Taiwan is going to be more likely, not less, as a result of these more unfavorable conditions that China finds itself in. Um, so, <clears throat> what? A, so, so, let's um let's discuss that in the context of the demographics. There's kind of two main takeaways from my perspective on this. One, um, China was happy to bide its time and hide its power. Um, you know, the great Deng Deng Xiaoping quote um, when it thought it was a growing power. However, as China can all of a sudden see its decline on the horizon by virtue of its incredibly unfavorable demographics coming down the pike. It means that what was previously a very risk conservative country, which was happy to wait, um, you know, as it, as its power continued to grow, is all of a sudden um, facing a, a closing uh, time frame where it can act to make moves. So that's one element. Um, and that's going to be that 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 element is going to be a very consistent theme uh, throughout all the factors that we're talking about. The second one is that in order to conduct the expansive military operation that trying to retake Taiwan would be, you're going to need a lot of bodies to throw at that problem. You know, look at the Russian invasion of Ukraine. There have been tremendous Russian casualties. And the fact that Russia has been able to continue its assault on Ukraine has been driven in large part by the fact that Russia outnumbers Ukraine by, what is it, like four or five to one or something in terms of population? Yeah, China's like
0: 140, excuse me, Russia's about 145 million people. And then uh, Ukraine is around 40. It's 40, right? Between between 35 and 45, depending on who you count and the
1: occupied territories, yeah. Exactly. So, you know, so one of the reasons Russia was able to sustain those enormous losses because the population base was so much larger than that of Ukraine's. And the same can be thought of, um, you know, with an invasion of Taiwan. The difficulties of a naval lift, naval lift is something that we've covered on this podcast. And suffice it to say that there would be tremendous casual, uh, Chinese casualties if they were to attempt that invasion. So, um, you know, you need to have the bodies to go do that. And as those bodies are aging out of fighting age men, um, that becomes also a uh, more difficult for China to launch such an invasion.
0: I agree. Um, if you feel like we've covered this
1: sufficiently, we could maybe pivot over to the economy more broadly now. Absolutely. Um- yeah, no, I think that's I think that's good. Um, so another thing that we talked on last time is the state of China's economy more generally. Obviously, demographics uh, play a role, but that's not to say that demographics is totally destiny. You can have a um, aging, shrinking society. Look at Western Europe, Japan, and still be tremendously prosperous and economically productive. Um, obviously, it helps if you have uh, good demographics, but it's not it's not a total requirement. Um, but the problem with China is that. <coughs> Coinciding with their demographic, their, their upcoming demographic decline, China was already facing economic headwinds. Regardless of that, um, the fact and figure I found um, in doing research for this episode that I really like and I think really exemplifies the problems China is facing is that in the years from two thousand ten to two thousand nineteen, which excludes you know excludes the effect of COVID and everything, um, China's GDP growth rate declined from ten point six percent in two thousand ten to six percent in two thousand nineteen, and it was which is both a a market decline as well as a steady and consistent decline. Over that time period, there was only one set of years where that trend reversed, which was in 2016 to 2017, the growth rate shot up from 6.8% to a whopping 6.9%. Wow, you know, 0.1% increase more. Um, So China's economy is slowing. And again, so much of modern China and both the International and internal conception of China is really predicated on that economic growth. Now, there was never an explicit contract with the people by the CCP, but I think there's within popular conception there's the idea of a grand bargain between the CCP and the Chinese people, which is we, the CCP, will deliver you economic growth, and you will deliver us political power and um, you know a uh, 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 autocracy, um, <clears throat> stability you know, more or less, stability exactly, yeah, um, one-party rule, all that sort of stuff, and you know I, I think that's a relatively easy deal for the populace to make. Um, when things are good like okay fine we're not you know think about it um in terms of u.s elections like the number one predictive factor of whether or not a president gets reelected is the state of the economy i believe like six, like you know six months prior to um the election and so you know if, if you're if you've gone from like fishing and farming villages to glitzing skyscrapers within the span of one or two generations within china yeah you know, whatever issues you might have with the party, you're happy to let them keep running things because it seems like they've done a good job. Like you personally have the lived experience of your uh, station in life dramatically improving. Um, But as that's coming to a close, um, you know, for a multitude of factors, which I'll uh, get to in a second after I let Mike jump in, um, you know, that's coming to a close. And uh, that's just going to, that's both another headwind facing China generally, but also, um, you know, uh, the, the, the bullet point would be that, you know, there's, there's a quote that I really like, which is, steel wins battles, gold wins wars. And in order for China to launch the naval lift that it would require to, to overtake Taiwan, it's going to have to have a lot of um, money to do so, you know, to, to purchase and then repurchase equipment and munitions, all that sort of stuff.
0: I think the point that we're trying to emphasize here is that China is going to face a crunch in terms of its priorities Um, It currently spends a tremendous amount on things, not just military, but construction projects all over the country and in other countries, the whole Belt and Road Initiative, right? It's kind of she's brainchild. Uh, But there's also the matter of internal security, which almost like bleeds into the lines of what we would consider the proper military. We'll touch on that later. The big thing that's changed or shifted since we last covered this topic is the intensification of the embargo on technology and knowledge uh specifically things like think the chips act that biden passed fairly recently uh this is basically cutting like shuttering the flow of goods and know-how between the west and china Um, again china does not have a great track record of innovation and pioneering the next big thing in technology they tend to rely on other markets to take that first step it's not to say that they never have it's just that that's typically how it goes and uh a lot of new things have come into place that are going to make it much more difficult for china to get its hands on things like basic semiconductors or things like uh like recently they um they put on some sort of a exportation embargo for like rare earth metals like germanium to the united states like ignoring the fact that you know i think 90 percent of the world's silicon is in north carolina (laughs) like i'm not sure how you're going to build a computer without lots of silicon but um that is uh, the big thing that's changed to me is like the amount of foreign investment in China has completely dried up almost. It's like literally a 30% drop since COVID. Um, and added to that, the the model of China's economy was predicated on lots of people and thus having lots of cheap labor and infrastructure. And the price of Chinese labor is I think increasing more rapidly there than any other place in the world, partially by virtue of their shrinking population. It's just basic supply and demand. Uh, but and, and economic success. And um, economic success. So, so
1: you, you touched on one thing that I want to expand upon more, which is the um, declining foreign investment in China, because that's that's a good kickoff. I, I sort of hand-waved the um, declining Chinese growth, and I want to expound on some of the factors that are driving that. Um, one is demographics, which will stop hitting at some point, but not now. Um, but another thing is the fact that the business climate in China, both for internal and uh, you know, Chinese companies as well as foreign companies has become a lot worse under Xi's premiership. Um, you know, in terms of foreign companies, there's been a lot more interference by party officials in terms of the how companies are able to do business. And for a long time, you know, China was not only, was the world's manufacturing hub, not just because of the fact that there were so many people available to do the work, but because of the very favorable regulatory environment. Sure, you might have to bribe some low-level officials, you know, to get your factory set up, but once you did that, you know, as long as you, you know, pay your patronage and everything, you're pretty much let off the hook to do whatever you want. Now, um, there's a lot more party commissar, party commissars, um, (laughs) I can't say that, um, you know, kind of looking over everyone's shoulder, making sure that, um, you know, companies are acting in accordance with Xi's directive. And, and let's talk about that. Um, you know, I talked about the bargain of growth for power with the CCP and the Chinese people. But Xi has upended that by really making um, CCP control of China's economy a premier point on his economic management of the country. He's perfectly willing to sacrifice economic growth in order to shore up the party's political power by not letting there be rival... See economic power centers within China. A great example of this is the tech crackdown and the disappearance, uh, however, you know, not brief, couple months, of uh, Jack Ma. You know, this this is like if the U.S. Um, government abducted Jeff Bezos for, for three to six months and then, you know, had him read basically a forced confession apology upon resurfacing, saying, oh, I will never, you know, go against the U.S. government again, never speak out, you know, which, which is, Actually, a better analogy than I even thought of, because he Jeff Bezos owns the Washington Post, which is you know um, typically critical of at least half the administrations in power. Um, so, and that's that's not the point being that's not a sound economic move. If you want, you know, for, for economic growth, you really need stability, predictability, and the rule of law, equal treatment, all these sorts of things. And um, Xi is willing to go against those economic principles in order to shore up his power. So those have kind of been some of the major drivers of um, China's decline, and particularly as a result of the declining um, foreign investment in China.
0: And that's actually a big reason why, despite it having now a larger population, India has not yet taken China's role in the world as the world's manufacturer, the world's factory. It's because India has long been plagued by a morass of regulations. Like, um, this is part of the reason why, like, Walmart never expanded into India, even though they tried. I think uh, something similar happened with Amazon, but I'm not entirely sure. Um, But yeah, these regulations do have a very significant effect in companies deciding when and where to invest. And a lot of parts of the world, which are still experiencing population growth, thinking like the combined areas of places like Vietnam or Cambodia or many countries in Africa, uh, or the Philippines, yeah, they are opening up to Western businesses uh, at an increased rate and taking away uh, China's former place as the world's factory. Now, granted, I'm not sure that China necessarily wants to be the world's factory. They are trying to shift more in a quality-first uh, direction rather than quantity-first. But it, it is what it is, and things have shifted. And um, So basically, the old model is not going to work anymore. And we haven't seen the uh, factors at play to ensure that China can manage this transition with any sort of effectiveness
1: into a, like, yeah. a consumer-driven middle-income economy. Exactly. So, um, in recognition of these headwinds, remember that uh, over ten percent GDP growth, uh, you know, over ten years ago in two thousand ten. Uh, the CCP is now targeting a modest 5% uh, annual growth rate for 2023. And, you know, the United States would love to grow at 5%, but it also has a significantly higher base than China. Um, You know, if you're doing 2% annual growth on a 50 uh, GDP per capita population versus 5% on a 10% GDP per capita growth, it'll take 55 years, give or take, for um, the second country to overtake the first. And that's well beyond the, you know, and at that point, demographics will hugely factor into... um, you know China's ability to sustain that growth, and 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 you know I, I, we'll, we'll we'll lay down our claim right here, kind of in the middle, which is a poor writing if you've been to a you know college writing seminar. But one of our thesis is for this episode is that we're going to come out and say it that we predict that as a result of all these factors that we, we've already talked about and we'll continue to talk about, we expect some sort of Serious action within the South China Sea within the next five years, um, and you know that's well beyond that 55-year uh, limit for China to overtake um, the U.S. Given given the, the growth rates that I just mentioned. Um, anything here otherwise? I think we can head over to just a quick update on the real estate sector, which we touched on last time. Go for it. Okay, um, <clears throat> so you know the first two topics uh, that we discussed have been kind of negative on China. So we're going to be fair and um, you know level-headed on this podcast and say there was. On the last episode, um, we talked a lot about the uh, housing crisis within China, as well as particularly the firm Evergrande, who was going through some very acute troubles at the time. Um, and since then... Uh, things have not played out exactly as badly as we or perhaps some other Western observers were thinking. Um, the property sector, as a result of significant uh, government largesse, to be fair, both in terms of reducing uh, the regulatory requirements on their balance sheet as well as um, uh, central bank accommodative monetary policy, um, but there's not been the wave of property failures in China that I think a lot of people were expecting, a la you know, the, the housing, crisis, <clears throat> housing crisis in the United States around 2008. Um you know, this is a little bit more than a dead cat bounce where um, the, the great line about stocks is anything will drop from, and anything will produce a bounce if dropped from a high enough distance. But, you know, for the major cities within China, the property sector is starting to rebound. Um, a figure that I found in doing research is that sales rose 44% year-on-year year, uh, within the 30 biggest cities, um, and the the housing price generally rose in 65 out of 70 cities, um, the let's, biggest cities in let's China. Let's
0: pause now. and remind people why this actually matters in the first place because yes. how this might just sound like, Typical real estate news. Real estate is a much bigger deal in China than it is in the United States, than it is virtually anywhere else in the world. Virtually two-thirds of household wealth in China are tied up in some sort of second or third home purchase because people treat uh, these newly constructed apartments and homes as an investment first and a place to live second. It is the modal way of saving your money and stashing your wealth in China because they don't have a stock market that they believe in and they just virtually don't have any other avenues with which to save their money. And so there's actually, I think, more second homes being purchased than first homes in China. So it's it's a really, really big deal in the Chinese economy, and a collapse of that a la Evergrande would have been a very big deal. That's why we're bothering to hit it again, and it is significant that we have not seen a complete collapse. Um, I don't think that's what we were predicting, but I think we both expected it to be a bit more dire than it turned out to be. In fact, Evergrande is still on its two feet, although it was, I think it was propped it, up. It's in
1: bank. Yeah. In, bankers, in uh, bankruptcy, in bankruptcy restructuring right now, enough. I believe, but yeah, no, it's um, it's not totally defunct. You know, th- that's a great point, and um, thank you for giving the explainer. Um, the the, the big thing about the the real estate sector, it, it, and to be fair, this is the case in other countries that your home is a tends to be. Uh, a big store value. But even for most people um, in the United States, if you own a home, you probably also have like a 401k, you know, some stocks on your own, maybe you bought some meme stocks, you know, bought some Tesla, whatever. Um, That's not really the case in China. Um, And particularly, so so this ties back into the demographics that we're going to, the drum that we're going to be keeping on banging this episode. But, um, you know, one of the issues with uh, China is that it doesn't have The social security um, system, you know, comparable in the United States or other Western countries, um, there. So, so the the store value um, in the assets that people buy over the course of their lives, which in this case means housing, it it needs for the most part right now it needs to be able to um, afford those people's retirement in uh, in income for retirement into perpetuity, basically. Um, So, it like imagine you know you're one of those baby boom population who's just on the edge of retiring, and all of a sudden. Basically, your entire portfolio drops by fifty percent because of the or more because of this housing crisis. That's going to cause tremendous instability um, within China because all of a sudden, you know, there, you don't really have anything to fall back on, and you're going to the government like, what am I going to do? And um, you know, that sort of uh, disconde- like economic dislocation for ostensibly a you know communist uh, country, uh, it's not. It's not unsustainable because it's not, um, you know, who knows what will or might or will eventually ever bring the CCP down. But it's not, it's certainly not helpful. Good. I think that's a helpful overview. So that was us just being charitable
0: and acknowledging that the worst had not come to pass in the housing market as we thought that it might. Um, But there are a few other important line items to address, uh, things that have changed since we last recorded. Uh, And I think the really big one is that Xi Jinping was confirmed for his third presidential term in March of this year. Uh, This might seem like a given, given most people's um, impression of China as being some sort of an authoritarian, you know, one-man dictatorship. That has not really been the tradition in China. They've actually been quite averse to that style of rule. Post-Mao. Yes, post-Mao. They are not blind to the cost that they paid to have Mao in power as long as he was. You know, the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution are things that they do talk about and they do recognize. Uh, and generally, they like to cycle leaders out every term or two. Uh, but in this particular case, she won, and overwhelmingly so. And most people are saying that this is the most power consolidated into any one person since Mao. Um, it really has become kind of a one-man show uh, to the point that he had— she had his uh, former rival, Hu Jintao, frog-marched out of the uh, the coronation ceremony, as it were, on live TV. Again, something that they don't typically do. Um so, this is a big deal. Remember she not only occupies the head of the the party itself but he also occupies the head of the military, which is not the case with his predecessors
1: exactly um so so, just want to clarify um one thing you said and then expand upon it um Mike made reference to presidential term and um you know, won by a landslide, which is a little um, confusing for people who don't follow Chinese politics, because it's not an election in the sense of uh, the United States open, free and fair and everything like that. This was very much wrangling done behind closed doors. Um, And I believe he was actually elected to, it's a little confusing because the party and the state are one and the same in China. But I think this uh, third term was actually as the premier of the CCP, not as the president of China, who, you know, happens to be one and the same. It's sort of like um, the 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 Pope and the uh, King of Vatican City who are the same person, but they're technically different roles. Um, Just a little trivia there. Um, Anyway, but uh, that's all well and good. The the important thing is that even kind of up until the last minute where this occurred, it was not for sure a given that it would take place. If you go back and uh, listen to one of our earlier episodes that we did, uh, Power Problems is the title, you'll see that there really is a lot of backroom dealing, wrangling, competing power centers that go on in China. And even though it is most certainly a one-party state within that party, there is definite vigorous political competition, just not through the avenues of um, public elections that occur in Western democracies that, that we happen to thankfully be a part of. And to tie this all back into the
0: overarching thesis of the episode, a big part of the justification for Xi winning this third term was that he made the reintroduction of taiwan into the mainland as one of his uh his primary goals his primary like reasons for being there in the first place uh that along with the zero covid policy have kind of and the belt and road have kind of formed the uh, the backbone of his his candidacy but it was so sp- s-
1: be- be- yeah before we talk about um the reunification of Taiwan. Let's hit the other thing that you discussed, which is the COVID crackdown and kind of its ending, as well as uh, obviously what occurred in the interim. Real quick, I know we want to get to Taiwan, but um, this this one last thing. Uh, <clears throat> so, you know, when we were doing the last episode, uh, the COVID lockdowns within China were certainly within full effect. However, what's occurred in the time since then is after Xi's re-coronation in March twenty three, not immediately, but relatively shortly afterwards. Um, I'd argue, as a result of his coron- uh, re-coronation, as well as um, some protests, there was an abrupt and sudden and total lift, not total, but 90 plus percent lifting of COVID restrictions within China. Uh, so one element that you could see it as is that, you know, Xi needed to maintain um, a powerful image and, you know, his political control over the populace up to leading up to the re-election um, just as a show of force as a uh, re-election, that's not the right term, but... um as a show of force to um, solidify his power within the country. But the other reason that these lifted is that there was some of the largest protests we've seen in China um, really since Tiananmen that occurred uh, in the interim.
0: These protests were a very big deal. So so this was the thing that people probably saw at least briefly in the news, even, even global news. Um, there were the Uyghurs that died in the apartment fire. They had been welded in and not allowed to leave due to COVID restrictions. And that ostensibly was the spark that set off these uh, this big wave of student protests, again the likes of which we have not seen since the '80s with Tiananmen Square. Um, this was, you know, in concert with some other protests that were going on at the Apple factory, like the the, the really big Apple factory where the where the workers went on strike. But it seems like, uh, like, it seems as if relations between the people and the government reached a boiling point, and they the people finally decided to try their luck going out in the streets and voicing their opinion. Um, I want to be careful as characterizing it as the people because really these were a lot of highly animated, probably highly politicized students who went out in the streets. What was truly unprecedented about what they were doing is they were calling for the downfall of the CCP. They were calling for democracy. They were at some point holding up blank sheets of paper to symbolize the fact that they weren't allowed to speak. Uh, these are types of public movements that we have not seen in China. And a lot of people, part of the reason that I wanted to hit this section was is that Um, I think a lot of people have misinterpreted the rise of these protests as a sign of internal Chinese weakness. And even though, like, we're kind of hitting that really hard in this episode, the fact is the protests didn't go anywhere, really. Like, they did result in the lifting of these restrictions, and that's what's interesting about them. The CCP bent, sort of, but they did not break. Every single one of these protesters, as far as we know, to a man has been apprehended and tracked down. It's just that the government was quiet and bided their time uh, while they were doing it instead of... Making the uh mistake of publicizing this the way that they did with Tiananmen.
1: Exactly. So let's um Let's kind of drive a couple more of those points further. Um, <clears throat> the first one is that, regarding protests, it's not like there are never protests in China. That's what you have to understand. You can have very local, very directed protests, like the water quality in this village isn't good. You know, this low-ranking mayoral level CCP candidate is, is no good. He's not good for us. Like, that's acceptable. That's part of a system that can tolerate enough dissent and bend um, not break is kind of the, the theme of this segment. Um, but the, the issue here was that it was both larger national like across the whole country as well as there was a explicit message of you know of grievance with the ccp directly it's one thing to say this individual ccp member is not doing a good job administering our village that's one thing to say we have issues with how the ccp is running society for instance lack of freedom of speech that's a whole separate thing. And um, so when Mike was talking about that, the, um, the the crackdown afterwards, this is sort of the anti-Tiananmen square uh, protests in terms of the, the CCP's response. In Tiananmen, obviously, there's the very famous image of Tank Man, you know, this guy standing against the column of tanks, threatening to roll him over, um, very public uh, show of force by the CCP to squash the protests. Here, it was the opposite. It was much more Gestapo covert-like, where due to um, China's you know, ter- impressive and terrifying internal surveillance technology, they were really able to track those who attended the protests who were agitating against the CCP. And, you know, we're not saying like there were, there were execution bans for all of these folks, um, but there was definitely some disappearing re-education, statements of confession, apology, all those sorts of stuff. And um, again, the clandestine covert nature of how China responded to the protests, where it, they were going on, and then they dealt with them after the fact is, um, I don't, I don't really have a point to make here other than it's really interesting that, you know, in the 40 years since Tiananmen, um, the style of squelching dissent within China has radically changed as a result of the improvements of uh, internal surveillance technology within the country.
0: Well, I, I think the important focus of the section is to act as a corrective to all the voices saying that this was a sign that the Chinese government was set to fall or weak or it was losing legitimacy in the eyes of the people, quote unquote. Um, I don't take that to be the case at all. I don't necessarily think. Uh, Though there is a lot of discontent in China with the domestic situation, you were right to point out, it's usually the local officials that catch the heat for that. It's usually not the central government. And in this particular case, Uh, The central government was called out and they silenced the people quite quickly. We haven't seen anything like that since. So this really, to me, is more a sign that they still know what they're doing in terms of internal security, arguably better than any other country in the world. And indeed, they spend more money on it. And they're exporting that model to other countries like in Africa, but that's a whole other topic put together. And so with that, I would like to now pivot to what I think will be the last part of this podcast, which is going to be an overview on the changes in the military situation since the last time that we recorded. Um... Like we've said at the top, we do think that a clash over Taiwan of some sort between the West and China is more likely now than not. I'm not saying it's inevitable, but whereas before, Sam, when, when you and I recorded, I would have said that we were probably, you know, 30, 70 on the odds, maybe 40, 60. Now, it's, now I'm the inverse. I am now more like 60,
1: 40. I think you are as well. You know it, that, um, I don't, I don't disagree with that sentiment, but it just, it just, it reminds me of the, the joke, do you know how, you know, economists have a sense of humor, they use decimal places. Yeah. So when we're assigning like, you know, precise odds to these sorts of things that, uh, I, I don't disagree with the general uh, sentiment, but it is, it is, you know, oh no, no, we're not, not 65, more like a uh, 63% likely. But our analysis is 100% correct, 100% of the time. So that's, uh, exactly. that's, that's
0: the one percentage that I believe in. Um, so I am worried that people don't have a very clear view of Chinese military strength vis-a-vis the Americans. Some people think it's all doom and gloom and we're completely screwed and there's no way to possibly resist the imminent coming of the Chinese century. And other people will point out that, well, when you look on paper, the American military budget is still almost 4x that of China's. So if we really wanted to, it's just a matter of political will, we could turn on the spigots and contain China indefinitely. Okay, so both of those are wrongheaded, and I will tell you why. Uh, first of all, let's back up and recognize what it is that China's trying to do. They are on a modernization roadmap where the goal uh, back in 2020 was to have a fully mechanized army. Uh, by 2035, they plan to be a fully modernized army, quote-unquote, and then world-leading by 2050, rivaling or eclipsing the United States. Just um,
1: very quickly, I think I think mechanized has a very specific meaning, and and I'd just maybe just expound upon that real quick. It does. So, so so the theme of all
0: this is that China is taking a much more quality first approach as opposed to the quantity first approach that they that you might think that they're known for. Um, like back when we fought the Chinese in Korea, it was primarily a bunch of you know peasants with rifles, n- no other fancy equipment that just body waved over the front lines and tried to overwhelm people with sheer force. Uh, But these days, China is spending a lot more on procuring new equipment uh, rather than new heads to be in the military. So when, when you say that a force is mechanized, that means that it's, you know, it's not just infantry with weapons. It is infantry with weapons and machinery and typically, like, Personnel carriers, Humvees, like a set of wheels or tracks to get around on. That's what mechanized essentially means. So what is in the budget? Okay, again, the American budget ostensibly appears to be over three times the size of China's. Uh, but there are differences in how the Americans and the Chinese categorize defense spending. Uh, For example, many, many things that the Americans would lump into that category include research and development. They include the National Guard. If America was in the business of importing arms rather than exporting them, that would go under defense spending as well. None of those things, they all happen in China, but none of that actually gets lumped into the defense budget, so you might be deceived into thinking that they're actually spending a lot less on their military modernization than they are in reality. China is heavily invested in research and development, specifically on things like AI, hypersonic missiles, uh, fifth-generation fighter aircraft, that being stealth aircraft. Um, They would be, I think, only the third country in the world to field its own, Uh, like us with the F-22, the Russians with the Sukhoi 57, and now the Chinese have two stealth variants that they've pumped out. Um, so that has been, that has been the focus, like a very quality, heavy focus in the air and naval domains primarily with a focus on deterring third party intervention, uh, in the
1: area of the South China Sea and Taiwan, gee, I wonder who that third party might be. Exactly. So let's, um, let's take a step back because although Mike, um, you know, your military knowledge far surpasses mine and probably any listeners on this podcast can definitely get into the weeds on these sorts of things. So like, let, let's, let's, take a step back and be clear about what China's objectives are. We've talked about them in this podcast. It's to reunify Taiwan. And um, just as a little background, the Taiwan is in such a precarious position because it occupies two key elements within China. One, there's the political dimension that I think most people would be more familiar with, which is here is a prosperous Western democratic um, liberal Country for all intents and purposes, directly across the sea from China, Um, it is Chinese. Its people came from mainland China, and it's taken a totally, radically different model from the CCP. So, allowing that to exist is a it's it's a existential political question for the CCP because it shows the Chinese people living under the CCP's rule that there is an alternative model that's that exists that might be better than what they're under. So that's number one. Uh, The second is that there is a geostrategic element to it, um, insofar as china is constrained as what by what's known as the first island chain and if you look on a map you can see a bunch of um islands that are very close uh to china on its western uh s- seaport and everything eastern and um e- yeah excuse me eastern god I'm just don't. <laughs> eastern eastern yes pardon me it's okay uh, maps are hard um <laughs> and um you know taiwan being one of the the, the largest of such and As a result, China's naval presence is very much boxed in. If China were able to retake Taiwan, it would have much freer access to the wider ocean, which is important both in terms of uh, securing its trade lanes, securing its import of oil, and um, most concerning to the US, um, we currently have a reasonable handle on chi- Chinese nuclear submarines as a result of the fact that they're in shallow water uh, close to their shore. But if China was able to overtake Taiwan and use that as a staging ground, we we might um, be able to, we, we'd probably lose track and uh, thus not have the we're, same level. We're, we're
0: definitely bleeding into classified information territory now that we cannot really make reasonable predictions on. But yes, it would. Exactly. So, it sorry. would certainly complicate the matter uh, for yeah, containment.
1: Let, sorry, let, me, let me finish one thing. I apologize. I got in the weeds too. No, no, um, so okay. the, 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 the point being, um, <clears throat> The point being that Taiwan is China's Objective number one, not least of which, because Xi said it himself. So, what China is trying to do with its military modernization is to achieve local superiority within the realm of overtaking Taiwan. Again, the U.S. budget is much bigger than China's. There's some debate about that. Fine, they, we have more aircraft carrier, more um, ship tonnage, all these sorts of things. But the U.S. forces are built to be able to operate around the entire world, anywhere from you know Argentina to Afghanistan. Um, whereas China is really concerned with only one objective, and if it caters its entire military to achieve that one objective, overtaking Taiwan, um, it's not to say that that would be impossible for it to do.
0: It's not. Um, To tie up what I was speaking about just a little bit earlier, just because I think this does matter, again, when you factor in all those things that I was mentioning before that don't get lumped in as defense under under the Chinese defense budget, when you add that all up, it it balloons the Chinese defense budget by almost 35 to 45%. So it's significant given that we're already dealing with a, uh, like a three X differential between China and the United States. And so all of that is being targeted to exactly what you're saying. Local superiority. That's the big deal. They have, they are making a force specifically catered to denying the Americans space in the air and at sea to operate the way that we want to operate the way that we would need to operate without a contiguous land border there. Um, so that is, I think the, the TLDR, and we can get into some more specifics if you want to, like, um... Let me just let me just like highlight some more like some final points for scale on this issue. Like when it comes to the to the uh, like the budgets and comparing like for like, things like the island building campaign that China has been embarking on. Remember, they're building they're literally dredging up sand and coral and creating bases in the South China Sea and unilaterally claiming it Chinese territory, like right up against the, the likes of the Philippines and Vietnam, right in their territorial waters. And they're stationing missiles, they're stationing aircraft, they're building landing strips, they're building deep water ports in these
1: areas. None of that. And they're claiming it's not familiar. Military use and there, yeah,
0: And none of it. <laughs> none of it gets claimed on their defense budget. And th- this is like 14 different islands that they've literally built. Like that's expensive. Um, they're importing tons of weapons from Russia. None of that's getting factored into the budget. They have, they have an entire maritime people's militia that facilitates the island building and bullies, you know, uh, Philippine fishermen out of their waters and shines lasers and airplanes and things. None of that gets factored in. They have an entire people people's armed police force, 500,000 strong, fully equipped with. Armored personnel carriers, infantry fighting vehicles, Kevlar body armor, assault rifles, grenade launchers, none of that gets counted in either. So this is like a very significant 35 to 40% chunk, and all of this stuff has utility and specific use during wartime, and they plan to use it if it comes to that. So this is an important accounting error that I want to correct.
1: Um, and and one, one more point on that as well. Um, you know, if you look at – Mike's done a great deal breaking down uh, where that money spent. But another thing to consider is that a lot of the U.S. military budget – Goes towards people, pensions, pay, all that sort of stuff. Whereas in China, as Mike was discussing, a lot of that budget is going towards building up the stockpiles, whether it's ships, artillery, weapons, munitions, all those sorts of things. Um, so when a war breaks out, like, you know, it's great that the VA has a pension, but I mean, that's not going to help your fighting prowess. So you can't compare these budgets like to like. China's doing um, what it sees as necessary to again, in our estimation, overtake Taiwan within the next uh, five years, retake. So while it's no guarantee, in fact, I think it's a foregone conclusion,
0: China is not going to eclipse the Americans economically like a lot of the world is predicting, but that doesn't mean they can't pick and choose what they do with what money that they have. And currently they have chosen to spend that money on their military. They are building 40%, 40% of the total amount of ships built each world. The Americans are only building 1%. Now, granted, we already have a very large standing navy, and we don't have to build as many. But I think we only have one active port left uh, out in California that's actually building warships anymore. China has a ton, like a ton. They have an entire island that does nothing but pump out submarines, like the island of Hainan, essentially. And another,
1: and another thing – and another, and another point on this um, ship construction and everything is um – The the newer stuff is the less you have to spend on maintenance, and because China is doing this enormous military push very recently, they're going to have a bunch of fresh equipment which will be ready to deploy in an imminent conflict. Whereas the United States fleet, we have some, you know, general fleet meaning you know armed forces entirely. We have some equipment from like the Cold War and everything like that, which has higher upkeep costs. So again, the military budget, we're not going to say that the U.S. is or that China is outspending the U.S., but it's not as immediately obvious as as any like cursory-level graph would make it seem visually.
0: Yeah, so to wrap that all up, not only are we not comparing like for like when you take the ostensible defense budgets of China and the United States, but it's worth re- repeating again that the overwhelming majority of American military spending is on salaries. It's not on equipment and necessarily capability. Now, you might argue that the individual American soldier is more effective and better trained and better equipped than the Chinese soldier, and that's probably true, but it, you like you have to understand that a uh, Chinese person is probably being paid half, if not less than what probably less, probably less. I, I I'm willing to bet like a Chinese Quarter, senior officer, a Chinese senior officer probably makes the same as like a newly enlisted fresh grad in the American Army. Uh, now, now that now that said, we do need to account for some headwinds that they're going to face in this area. You you mentioned the uh, the cost of upkeep and maintenance on equipment. A lot of these ships and aircraft that China has built. Um, they are approaching a ten year life shelf, and they will require some overhauls, and so that is maybe another reason to think that China's going to feel like it it's a better time to act today than wait tomorrow by the time our ships are resting. Also, personnel costs are ballooning in China. We talked about the uh, the rising uh, or like the falling pool of labor and thus the rising cost of labor in China. the same is kind of holding true with their personnel salaries, which have which you know they've received a forty
1: percent pay raise since two thousand twenty one in China. yeah. Um, and we mentioned this in the, the demographic section, but worth repeating here, a military can only function with its personnel. And the fact that China is experiencing declining pop- <coughs> me—declining population growth at this rate um, means that, again, all of these factors combined, in our estimation, make a move on Taiwan, more likely not less within the imminent time frame.
0: And I think my chief concern is that not enough people recognize that it's happening and that it's happening very fast. Um, we're not going to have the luxury of sleepwalking into this cold war that Henry Kissinger, of all people, already thinks that we're in. Um, for example, the if you if you were to take another like small country surrounded by hostile powers, think Israel. Israel spends upwards of five percent of its GDP on defense. The Taiwanese are barely even hitting two percent right now. The NATO threshold as a point of comparison. The NATO threshold as a point of comparison. It's the same that, like, Spain would be sending. And, like, what's Spain really worried about besides, like, militants in North Africa? Um, The Taiwanese strategy, as far as I can tell, appears to be bet on the United States while our kids play video games. And that's not going to work. And they need to be shocked out of that fantasy that, you know, there's no guarantee. Like, the Americans, we have the—we have reserved the right to interfere on Taiwan's behalf, but we have not— ascribed ourselves any obligation to do so there is no formal treaty in the way that there is with say south korea or japan strategic ambiguity still rules the day and despite biden's recent comments to the contrary that is still what's officially on paper and it really seems like it's going to be up to whatever sitting president we have at the moment what we do about it if it comes to a blow with taiwan and there's one other thing there's actually one other thing that we really need to stress here that you might be saying well you know this is all well and good, Michael and Sam. Like, okay, China may think it needs to act now as as opposed to tomorrow, but don't they know that they would still probably lose a pitched war? Well, that's not to say that it's going to be a pitched war. They could easily take a much softer route and try something like a blockade. They simulated something exactly like that back when uh, Nancy Pelosi visited Taiwan or like Tsai Wang, the uh, the president of uh, Taiwan, went and visited the United States and sat with Kevin McCarthy. Um, they simulated a giant missile attack in the South China Sea, and they surrounded the island with ships and flew their warplanes overhead, and basically let them know what they could do in the event of you know Taiwanese independence or whatever it is that would trigger a, a Chinese military response.
1: Yeah, up to and including nothing, and and you said you know it'll be up to whatever president is in power at the time to make a response. Um, the kind of one of the last takeaways as we look to wrap this up somewhat soon is that. In our estimation, the best thing the United States can do and the world can do is make it so that that thought does not even enter China. You said again, what a president might do in such a if such a scenario were to occur, and we need to disabuse China of that notion. We need to make it crystal clear to them that in that if they were to try to overtake Taiwan, not that there would be a response, but there, that there would be such a response that in any reasonable estimation, they would not be successful in carrying out their aims. Uh, I think the war in Russia's war in Ukraine can be seen largely as a result of Putin thinking that he could get it. And that's really kind of the only way to break it down. Like what, you know, you can say, oh, Putin was isolated due to COVID. He was only surrounded by yes men, all these sorts of things, whatever. But at the end of the day, uh, the Russian government led by Putin thought that they would be able to be successful and relatively easily so in retaking, in taking Ukraine for themselves. And at the same, and, you know, if there were, you know, 20 NATO brigades stationed directly on the Russian-Ukrainian border, I don't think Russia would have that idea in their head. And, you know, that's not necessarily what we're advocating with regards to Taiwan. But to quote H.R. McMaster, weakness is provocative. And we need to be in such a stance, um, you know, the United States in terms of our own domestic production of military equipment, Taiwan in terms of their military spending and military preparedness and readiness and all these sorts of things. We need to make sure that Even a slightly irrational leader surrounded by yes-men look at the porcupine that we're trying to make Taiwan and think, oh, no way can I take that. Um, Because, you know, if if a war were to break out or even a blockade, you know, something short of a full-on invasion, nobody knows what would happen. And, you know, one one topic that we haven't discussed in this podcast is that uh, the U.S. and China are both nuclear-armed powers, and uh, that's not anything – we're not going to really prognosticate on that because who knows? That's kind of – that's impossible to think about. But, like, you don't want it to come to that is the point you really don't and you really don't want it to start in the first
0: place it there is no ukraine strategy set up for taiwan there is no land border if taiwan were attacked it would be virtually impossible to to resupply the island it's too close to china china has too extensive and sophisticated a missile and area denial bubble around the area like mo- again most of the money that china has spent on new kit has gone to uh, like hypersonic missiles and anti ship Precision guided missiles and... it.
1: Sorry, go ahead. Well, just, sorry, one one sentence on that. Like, it's important for people to keep in mind that Ukraine has an enormous land border with NATO. And one of the reasons that Ukraine has been able to sustain its defense um, is that we have been shepherding them munitions through, like, Poland, for instance, which Russia cannot strike as Poland is a member of NATO. They're there taiwan, is no equivalent for taiwan exactly yeah. exactly so we need to the point being that we need to make sure that if china decides to get buck we have all the munitions on that island on the island prior to their invasion not after it yeah. we have to act preemptively not reactively. Yeah. there would not there would not be time to adapt in a scenario like this it needs to
0: be done preemptively um and if china does make an attempt you we we also don't know how it would react like remember that china and russia are not the same thing and if confronted with a major setback, we don't know what each force would do. In Russia's case, they got repelled from Kiev and they chose to reconstitute, double down, and drag this out into a god knows how long of a war they plan to keep us up with. We might. A lot of analysts are predicting that, you know, this would be a swift air and naval engagement and you can't drag that out over too long of a time period. But we could be wrong about that. You don't know that this war is going to look like the last one. There's nothing to say that if China loses its entire naval fleet, it doesn't then start mass producing, you know, Naval drones, the, the, the style that the Ukrainians are now producing at a much cheaper rate, and just overwhelm American convoys with, like, these suicide boats. Things like – just scenarios like that. Drone swarms in the air. Like, China owns DJI, which is producing all the drones, basically, that you see in the Ukrainian conflict right now. The Ukrainian war, excuse me. Um, so we don't want to find out where that road leads. So the best way to deal with the situation is to prevent it from happening in the first place. I think that's a fairly obvious point, not to belabor it any further, but that is where we stand. And with that, I I think we've basically uh, burnt all the the
1: powder that we had stored up
0: in the keg for this episode. I think that was... uh
1: Pretty much are you saying that are you saying that we've expended all the munitions that we have on the island of the synopsis podcast after the conflict of this great podcast? Uh, I'm from the great state of Georgia, which also houses Lockheed Martin, so I'll make a few calls.
0: So hopefully everyone, we've conveyed to you that the situation in China has mostly worsened since we last discussed it, not across the board, but in most regards of demographics and economics and the uh, military balance of power, things have not shifted decisively in the Chinese favor. And despite what you may think, We believe that that actually makes it more likely that they're going to act sooner rather than later. If we can no longer convince China that tomorrow is a better day to act than today, we have lost. Or at least we have gotten to the precipice of something really terrible that we don't want to think about. We are in a second Cold War, and we do not get a choice whether or not that is the case. It is what has happened.
1: And uh, do you have any other? Yeah, we want to make sure that that Cold War does not turn hot. And the best way to do that is to convince China through an overwhelming show of force and support of Taiwan and building up their defenses and, you know, strength within the Western alliance uh, that makes it abundantly clear, even to Xi Jinping, who is, you know, emperor for life at this point, surrounded by yes men, that it is not possible for China to retake Taiwan.
0: And with all that, we want to remind all of our listeners that we are continuing to do a mailbag at the Synopsis Podcast. Please send us your hate mail, comments thoughts suggestions at the synopsis podcast at gmail.com and if your message is as disgusting and chinaphobic and nuclear war mongering as all the content today well, then we will include it because it will just fit right in with everything else that we've said so with that we want to thank our listeners for tuning in to yet another episode of the synopsis podcast i am michael and i'm sam and until next time remember nothing is to be feared only understood yeah. The Synopsis Podcast is co-hosted by Sam Bach and Michael Williamson. Produced by Mark Fusito. Artwork by Eli Bach.